Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 through 30. The Lord said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. I think pluck is like a, a euphemism. You can't pluck it out. You have to gouge it out, right? Gouge it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, thank you, Lord, for your teaching, for your word. Thank you that you bring all things into accurate perspective. That by your word, we get to see the way that God sees all things. And Lord, help us to to understand, to embrace it. And then, Lord, by the grace that you offer, help us to live according to it. And, Lord, so we, we want to, of course, bring Judy before you. And, Lord, I, it was so sudden from a cold to this. And I, I just pray that you would grant mercy to her body, Lord, that you would cause her body to respond well to antibiotics, Lord, that your hand would be upon her in bringing her to health. We pray that, Lord, you who command the stars, that you would command her kidneys and that they would begin to function again. And Lord, I know that uh, Joe is certainly um, emotionally more of a mess than his, his bride is. I just pray that you'd comfort him and that through this dark period, I pray that you give him strength because he has none of his own. And uh, just encourage his heart. And Lord, I also pray for the people of Ukraine and Russia or our own government, we pray for NATO, um, Lord, that, that peoples would repent and that they would have mercy and show compassion. Lord, this is your gig to handle because it's way beyond anything that we can um, manage. So Lord, we do put it in your hands and we ask that, Lord, that the gospel would be uh, preached and become prominent as so much hatred, so much suffering is, is spreading. Lord, help them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. So I want to review quickly with this whole um, way that Jesus is engaging with his audience. He says, you have heard that it's been said, but I say to you, we don't want to lose track of what that means. When Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, he's referring to the oral tradition, which is always oral teaching, oral instruction, but it has to do with the rabbis and how they had interpreted, but rather misinterpreted, the law of God to the people of God in, in Israel. What they had done is, is they had either limited uh, or they had diminished or they had scrapped what the law had said. And we'll actually encounter all three of those when we go through the Gospels. It's, it's um, limiting, diminishing, um, or just completely scrapping. You have heard that it was said and then Jesus follows that up with, but I say to you, and then what he gives is uh, the, the, the fuller uh, intent that God had when he uh, prescribed his, his moral commandments. And, uh, and that right now, of course, is a monologue between him and the audience that's with him on the Sermon on the Mount. Later on, it'll turn into um, 
a dialogue uh, between him and the, the Pharisees. And Jesus will say to them, you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your traditions, by your oral teaching. So um, if, you're, if you happen to be interested in a very strange read, um, the oral traditions of these rabbis was later written down in what is called the Talmud. There's both the Jerusalem Talmud and there's the Babylonian Talmud. Uh, it's, it's very extensive, um, and it's, much of it is very, very strange. Uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't encourage you to start at the beginning and read through it. Uh, I would look at something topically, and you can Google that. And uh, I, There's some wild, wild stuff. Anyway, that's, that's for another time. I'll address some of it as we go through uh, the Gospels. Again, if Jesus were correcting the law of God, the word of God, he would say, as it is written, but I say to you. Jesus never says that. He never corrects the, the word of God, which is divinely inspired, authoritative, sufficient, and all of the rest. Uh, whenever Jesus quotes the word of God, whenever he says, uh, and it is written, or has it not been written, he's always reaching for divine authority on whatever he's talking about. He uses it to settle all issues. Last week, uh, we looked at Jesus' correction regarding uh, the rabbi's limited view on murder. This morning, uh, Jesus will confront the limited view of the rabbis regarding adultery. So let's look at it. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. So of course, Jesus is here quoting the seventh commandment from Exodus 20 verse, uh, verse 14. Not a challenge to the law of Moses, but that of the rabbis, how they had uh, interpreted this or their lack of interpret interpretation. First, I want to, let's look at what adultery is. I don't want to assume that when I throw common terms out there that people have biblical definitions of those terms. So please listen carefully, uh, and we'll get into these further as we go. Uh, here, not this morning, but next Sunday in, in the Sermon on the Mount, later in chapter 6. And then in chapter 19, these terms will become very important to us. Adultery consists of a married person engaging sexually with someone who is not their spouse or should not be their spouse. Adultery consists of a married person engaging sexually with someone who is not their spouse or should not be their spouse. Adultery in Scripture is just a category of fornication. Simply put, adultery is sexually immoral, just like homosexuality, bestiality, and pedophilia. In the Old Testament, when God talks about sexual sins, they're all bunched in there together. Okay? It's all considered sexually immoral. Fornication is essentially any kind of sex or sexuality that is not in the proper context of marriage. That is, who God says you should be married to. Adultery then refers to fornication among the married. It is sexual unfaithfulness to one's spouse by covenant, by covenant. And we say spouse by covenant because um, more and more what we're hearing is, is uh, oh, we're married. I mean, we agreed. And it's kind of like in Kenya, uh, it's, it's a, a cultural thing called come, we stay. And if we shack up together, we're married. Or if we decide to have committed sex, then we're married. As if committed sex is what biblical marriage is all about. Um, and if you're wondering, it's not, just to be clear, just to be clear. And then there's all these other things that, you know, scripturally that have to be considered about sexual morality, especially from God's perspective. 
And according to the law, according to God's prescription for uh, what we call theocratic Israel, the penalty for adultery was the, exactly the same as for murder, which was death. And it's a very interesting, interesting thing about murder and adultery is that when you look through Leviticus, there is no sacrifice that one can offer in the temple to uh, atone for one's sin. There's, there's no such sacrifice. In fact, when David committed adultery with Bathsheba, he talks about his sin, his confession in Psalm 51, and he, he even mentions there that the Lord in this regard desires no sacrifice. There's nothing prescribed. There's nothing that he can do. All he can do is throw himself to the mercy of God in repentance and confession. And um, so the question that comes up is why is so severe? Especially in a culture like ours where adultery is so common, fornication is commonplace. Well, the penalty for any sin is meant to inform us of the severity of the sin, not from our perspective, because we always like to view things from our perspective, but it has everything to do with God's perspective, how he views that. It's also meant to inform us about its danger to one's soul, to the family, and to society. Always those three things, to one's individual soul, to the soul of the family, and to the soul of society. God's law also intensifies the nature and gravity of sin. That is, from our perspective, it helps us see it for what it is. And then every respective penalty, of course, addresses the severity. Now, when you look at legal philosophy and things, you know, law and penalty are meant to communicate the, the truth of the matter, the truth of sin, especially in God's law. And it's meant to, to slow, to, to you know, hold back the tide of moral dissipation in relationships, in society. You see, whatever happens in the family is going to be permissible in society. But the more that we define things properly in family, and we're doing a good job at family, uh, the more impact it'll have on society. Okay, good families, good society. It's just the way it goes. So you take a good look at our society, and what does it say about the state of the family? It's a mess. Um, only 18% of American households have the original father and mother in it. That's, that is a terrible reality in our culture. Yeah. When moral boundaries from God are ignored, it doesn't just lead to judgment. It, it leads to the destruction of people's lives. And then when you throw in uh, a debased sexuality into a culture, those cultures where it's prevalent always become the most wicked cultures. Without, without exception, every one of those cultures, they destroy the sanctity of humanity, they diminish, they destroy the dignity of womanhood, and they take advantage of children. It was true in the ancient world, it's true today. It's true today. Sexual depravity corrupts and destroys every level of society, and it always involves the most vulnerable populations, always. So adultery in every version of fornication is something that we have to regain an understanding for. It's, it's never about the person that is lusted after. It's always, without exception, an act of selfishness. It is never love. It's never love. So what we have in our culture is a, a mentality that is based on whatever pleases me, whatever's best for me. Individualistic, self-fulfilling, and all of that. It's never love. The only context where sex can be beautiful, mutually beneficial, Fulfilling, God-honoring, of course, is within the covenant of marriage. Now, adultery itself is a symptom of a deeper issue that was missed by the rabbis. So Jesus has to address it. 
He says, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So the, the, the rabbis had, had interpreted the law as bare minimum. You know, just don't have sex with someone that's not your spouse and all will be well. Now to do that, they had to ignore the 10th commandment, which is what? Thou shalt not covet. And what's listed in there, what you should not covet? People. People. Yeah. They, they did the same kind of maneuvering with the law regarding murder. They didn't go far enough. Uh, they're doing it here. They failed to address the heart of the issue. And the heart of the issue is the what? The heart. The heart. Yeah. Just like anger toward a brother or a sister was, is murder in the heart, so too lust is adultery in the heart. So let's, let's start with another term. Jesus says, I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust. Now, it's worth saying that Jesus is not limiting the sin of lust to something that men do, okay? Jesus doesn't mean that. Lust is not a male problem. It's a human problem. The malady thrives among both genders. Also, Jesus is not talking about your desire for your spouse, thankfully. Okay? You can desire your spouse all you want. God has ordained it. Um, just read the Song of Solomon. Uh, I don't get awkward in many contexts, but I know that when I teach the Song of Solomon verse by verse, it's going to be awkward. Okay? Uh, the book is it's holy. <laughs> it's not for single people. Uh, it's, I'm trying to find an appropriate word, but it's, it's not coming to me. <laughs> yeah, it's not an allegory. It's, it's a love story. Okay? Jesus is talking about lusting after someone who is not your spouse. The word looks in the Greek is in the present tense. It means the act of looking or gazing or staring. But here the looking is with lustful feeling, interest, desire, lustful intent. So Jesus is not referring to, uh, you know, you or I noticing uh, the beauty or uh, the attractiveness of a person. If that were the case, uh, we should go about blindfolded or we shouldn't go in public at all, okay? You know, but these days, and, and I want to address this as a matter of perspective, you know, being in public today is not like being, being in public in first century Israel, which is the historical context that Jesus was in. In first century Israel, people were covered with lots of clothing from the neck down to the ankles, at least in a public setting. Of course, men would dress down somewhat for physical labor and for war, okay? but that wasn't for public display. That was for safety it was for tactical advantage. You know, in the scriptures where it talks about girding up your loins, well, they, they wore long flowing robes, and how well do you run in those things? No, so you had, to, you, had to, you had to gird them up, you had to bunch them up, so you could go to combat, so you could do physical labor. So at that time, if you were to notice somebody's beauty or attractiveness, it wasn't because they were wearing yoga pants, or he was wearing a tank top. There were no tight pants. There were no low-cut shirts. It wasn't their shape. It wasn't their physique that was readily noticeable. In our culture today, we wonder, well, what then was there to lust after if all you could see was their dirty feet and their faces? And we would wonder that because the human body is on full display in Western culture, uh, where clothing is engineered to attract lustful attention. We wear clothing that is so fitted that it looks airbrushed on. If you don't know what airbrushing is, it's a, a super light coat of paint. How's that? Okay. If it wasn't for the color of their clothing, we would think that people were naked. All right. That's just the truth. And you know, we didn't begin this way in our culture. 
we, we morphed into it over the years and we've adjusted to it, and now we just accept it and call it normal as if what is common is normal and morally neutral. Morally neutral. You know, I've always been interested in uh, looking at little things that God did throughout the scriptures to ensure that people weren't exposed in any way. You know, in the temple, there's no stairs. There's no stairs. You know why? Because God didn't want somebody in flowing robes to have an elevated position above others because it could expose them. Very interesting how careful God was to ensure that, that people's bodies were protected from view. It's very interesting. So I want you to consider something. If there was a problem in first century Israel with lust, even though people were covered, how much more do you think the problem exists in our culture where people wear clothing to accent their bodies, to invite attention, to make themselves look more desirable, to be more lusted after? I mean, you think of all the things that Jesus mentions in the Sermon on the Mount, and lust comes to the surface at the top. If it was a problem then when all you could see was feet and faces, it's a problem now, big time. Imagine what a first century Jew would think about the way we dress today. What would Jesus have thought? What would he have said in the Sermon on the Mount if he were standing here right now preaching on adultery in the heart? Golly. You know, before the fall, in the age of innocence, you know, there in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were naked. But as soon as sin entered the world, God covered their bodies. He covered them. And listen, it's not because they were naked. It's not. It's because of what sin did to the human heart. That's why. And notice something else. He didn't just cover the women. He didn't just cover women. He covered the man. God knew that by the nature of sin, the human body would be lusted after, that it would be ultimately exploited, especially among humanity's most vulnerable population, women and children. And so he covered us to protect us, to protect us. You see, because God makes beautiful things, the human body can be an intoxicating thing to behold. But because of sin in us and in our world, we do evil things with what is holy to God all the time. To illustrate this, we just have to consider the sex and porn industry, which is an industry that appeals to the lust of humanity. At a minimum, it brings in more than $15 billion annually. But we have to understand something about this number. That number is based upon the sale of what they consider. They make $15 billion a year off of what they believe that porn is. They make exponentially more than that when we apply Jesus' definition to it. Much more is considered pornographic by the Creator. So they're making far more than $15 billion a year. In 2018, just one porn producer among thousands reported that 28 0.5 billion people viewed its content. One, one producer, one outlet of thousands. Pro-porn journalist Michael Castleman writing for Psychology Today. If you ever thought Psychology Today was a reputable uh, magazine, um, you're behind the times, okay? <laughs> he said that men, they, they don't view porn very often. He says that men watch porn for seven and a half to 25 minutes a day. One to three hours a week, only a small fraction of the time most people spend glued to on-screen entertainment. He's, he's talking about football and sitcoms. And then in his concluding remarks, he says this, Yes, there's tons of porn on the internet, but so what? The vast majority of those who watch spend no more time viewing than the typical coffee break. The sky hasn't fallen. Internet porn is not a social crisis, not even 
close. This man sounds like a growing majority in Western society that says porn is good, it's it's healthy, it won't destroy you, it won't negatively affect uh, relationships or your perception of the opposite sex, Uh, it won't hurt or kill your marriage. It it actually has the potential to improve it. How many guys know who Billie Eilish is? Is it Eilish? Okay, never heard a song of hers. I ran across an article uh, that she had She had been interviewed in regard to how porn has destroyed her life, what it did to her as a young girl, her perceptions about the opposite sex, what sex should be like in relationships. It's a good read. It's a good read. Someone among their own ranks is not echoing this kind of stupidity. Okay? It's nuts. And Billie Eilish is no, like, role model for your child, by the way. I'm just saying that those that are the victims of their own culture... It's an interesting thing to consider. This journalist, he reduces the whole matter of lust and porn to social issues rather than moral ones. To him, it's not a moral issue. You see, this sounds so much like the devil when he was speaking to Eve. It should make our skin crawl. You know, Satan essentially said, Eve, it won't kill you to eat the fruit. That's a lie. If you do this, it will enlighten you. It will fulfill you. It will satisfy you. It will give you access to what God has been holding back from you. That's what he was saying to her. Michael Castleman and a host of others have really picked up where the devil left off, and our culture is reaping the consequences of it. In reading his article, Mr. Castleman, his, his logic is flawed. His conclusion is, is like saying a little arsenic in your diet every day is harmless. It's just stupid. Reading his article, it sounds like someone who's trying to dig themselves out of guilt and complacency. Sounds like somebody that's been paid by the porn industry. It's corrupt. So you guys, we can either consult the experts of our day about porn and its consequences, lust, which Mr. Castleman does copiously, or we can appeal to a higher authority about the issue. Jesus says that anybody who looks with lust has committed adultery in their heart, and he knows everything that is happening in the heart of man. Ecclesiastes 12.14 says, For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. He knows all that lies in the heart. He knows all that comes into your mind through your eyes. A little lust is adultery. It will be brought into judgment. Yeah. Now, you know, it's no surprise that so many in our culture favor porn. Uh, there's a growing number of bioethicists, psychologists, politicians who are working to normalize things even like pedophilia. Uh, reading some of their literature, they say there isn't a problem with pedophilia itself, it's our perception of it. And oftentimes they mean the Christian community. So they're trying their best to change public perception because it's our perception that is so off. So they do this step by step, just as they've done with all evils associated with sexuality. It all begins with lust in the heart. Now, I don't want to bog you down with statistics, but a few are worth noting, I think, to better understand the problem. Okay, how the, the problem of lust in the U.S. The U.S. visits porn sites more than any other country in the world, and we do it mostly on Sundays. It's a very interesting day. One in five internet searches on a mobile device are for porn. Over 28,000 users are watching pornography every second. Over $3 million is spent on porn every second on the internet. Now, men usually get blamed for being the ones who view porn, but the number of women viewing porn is skyrocketing. I want you to listen carefully. Just over 30% of porn consumers are women. Just over 30% of porn consumers 
are women. And the number of teenage girls that view porn is growing exponentially. And the vast majority, like boys, they view it on mobile devices. You know what I'm going to say about mobile devices now, don't you? Yeah. It's highly likely that your teenager, if they have a mobile device, that they've viewed porn, that they're exposed to it. Many view it regularly. If you're a parent, you are the overseer of their sanctity. Do something about it. Care for their soul. If your child has a friend with a mobile device, that's something you'll want to monitor carefully. My children will not have a mobile device that can access the internet while they live in my home. They don't need one, just as you and I didn't need one growing up. We made it, you guys. We're here. The Gab phone, how many of you guys have heard of that? The Gab phone is a great alternative to a smartphone. It's a phone that lacks the technology to access the internet or to download images. It can call and it can text. Doesn't sound like a, a decent alternative. I think so. Your children may need to contact you, but they don't need a mobile device that can tap into the internet. So what is porn? Well, if you ask someone in Western society, you're going to get one answer. If you ask someone in Saudi Arabia, you'll get another answer. And if you were to ask Jesus, he always has perspective, doesn't he? The question is, who is correct? Jesus. That's right. Jesus would say that pornography is anything you watch, look at, or think about that generates lustful desires. You guys, the human body then is not meant to be viewed by others or put on display for others. The human body is sacred. Oh, but Pastor Ben, that's pretty extreme. Is it? Says who? You? Our culture? Hugh Hefner? I would really like to hear his perspective today. Really, I would. Like the rich man with Lazarus. We got his perspective from hell. I wouldn't mind hearing Hughes now. Yeah. People, in general, evaluate and judge things based upon a curve, based upon cultural norms, what they're used to, what you and I are used to. But we serve a God who cannot do that. Okay? He is unchanging in his moral nature. He will never, and he can never, view things differently. He can't. He is immutable. He's unchangeable. God can't change his perspective on what is morally good and what is morally bad. His perspective and his judgment on those issues is fixed. And listen, it is always at the peril of our eternal well-being that we depart from his view of morality. Always. God does not get used to sin like we do. And he alone reserves the right to define morality, to prescribe its boundaries, and to judge it appropriately. That's in his court. He gets to decide. He's the source of truth. It's because of him that we have any sense of right and wrong. And it's always because of sin that we depart from it. Always because of sin. As Christians, you guys, we should be in the habit of asking God what is, what is proper and morally decent from his word, lest we get caught up in this immoral tide of our culture. You guys, we are the church, the ecclesia. It means to be called out, to called out. Christ has called us out of this dark world so that we can walk in his light, which is discovered in his word. Romans 12.2 says, And do not be conformed to this world. If you would like, uh, world could easily be translated to culture. To culture. Do not be conformed to this culture. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You guys, moral reasoning... And moral determination are disciplines that must be grounded in God's word and never, ever in human experience. Never. In our current culture, people validate themselves by this, they, they, now they call it lived experience. 
their lived experience, which is nothing more than moral relativism, a dangerous doctrine of humanism that says morality is to be determined by an individual, by me, and not by any objective reality. In other words, it's not for God to define moral truths, but for man. Oh, but God will have the final say. He will. So back to this word looking. I know that some are asking the question, what then is inappropriate looking? When does it become lustful? When does it you know, cross the line and become sinful? Because according to Jesus, it's not noticing someone's beauty. That's not lustful. It's when looking generates sexual intent or desire for another person. Well, when is that? Well, I think it's, it's the combination of a number of things that you should consider. Would you be comfortable being videoed as you watch someone you were attracted to and then have us play it here at the church for everyone to watch? If you're not comfortable with that, your looking is probably inappropriate. What do you think about that? I mean, if your looking is upright and above reproach, what would it matter? Except maybe you don't like being videoed and shown in front of 500 people. Anyway, trust me, I don't like standing in front of you people. You're always staring at me. Would you want me as a father watching you stare at my daughter? Probably not, okay? Uh, So it's probably inappropriate looking. And if you're not convinced, just look at the way I'm looking at you when you're looking at my daughter that way. I will be very convincing. And if it continues, I'll be probably looking at you from about this far away. (laughs) Imagine what your spouse would think if they caught you looking at another person that way. Would they approve? And what do you think about a holy God looking through your eyes? at the things that you look at, knowing what your thoughts are. I'm always amazed with Hollywood. They have a rating system, and they know how to fit their movies within that rating system because they know deep in their hearts what is inappropriate. We do too. Whoever looks at another person to lust for them has already committed adultery with them in their heart. And the truth is, people are lustful because they are sinful. Every one of us. So what do we do about it? Well, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into into hell. Jesus, it makes me uncomfortable when you talk about hell. It makes me anxious. Well, Jesus didn't take a PC class on how to give you the bad news in a good way. So hell it is, all right? Of the 12 times it's used in the New Testament, I said this last week, 11 times are used by Jesus. He is the authority on hell. He even said, uh, I didn't really create it for men. I created it for wicked angels. And then we just became, through sin, qualified for the same place. A couple things about Jesus' words here. Uh, His words are true in themselves. It would certainly be better to gouge your eye out and cut your hand off and cast them into hell than for your whole body to be cast into hell. That is a true statement. It would be better. And Jesus is being serious. You know, drastic sins like lust and adultery call for drastic measures. Something radical should be done to secure repentance and obedience to God. But Jesus is not being literal. If he was being literal, we should all be without eyes and hands. Should be. All of us should be. Okay? And some people, interesting, early in church history who were allegorists, who viewed the scriptures non-literally, one of them, probably the most fanatical allegorist of all of them, took this literally and he castrated himself, only to find out that it didn't fix the problem. Okay? You can look it up. His name was Origen. Origen. 
It is because of the serious nature of the sin that Jesus speaks with such graphic language. If man does not repent, his whole body and soul will literally be cast into hell. Jesus knows that it's not our eyes and hands that cause us to sin, it's our hearts. And he doesn't mean the physical organ. There's no physical member that can be gouged out or cut off that would secure our repentance. There's just not. Only by the grace of God can we repent of sin. And so we, we are responsible for doing whatever we can reasonably to get sin out of our lives, especially something as destructive as lust and adultery. So if you are struggling with lust, it's possible that relationships, relationships should be severed. It's a good possibility that certain contexts should be avoided. A job change is not preferable if you cannot defeat this sin in your life. It is necessary. It's necessary. And God will honor it, by the way. A gab phone purchased and your smartphone abandoned. Safeguards placed on your computer and maybe the abandonment of your computer. You'll need accountability established between you and a faithful brother or sister. Brothers and brothers. Amen? Sisters and sisters. And most certainly a whole lot of self-control as you submit, as we submit to the Holy Spirit. Your marriage may depend on it, but your soul demands it. Your soul demands it. The Holy Spirit tells us in 1 Corinthians 6 that no adulterer will enter into the kingdom of heaven. You guys, the habit, the cycle must be broken. So a quick word, another quick word about porn. So guys, I know what it is to be a man, to be consumed by the desire for sex and pleasure. Okay? I know your pain. I know your frustration. I know your temptation. It's common to man. But there is an uncommon grace that not only forgives and washes, but enables you to repent and be pure. There is. You're not alone in the fight, but if you do not reach out to another brother with your struggles, you will suffer defeat alone. No man stands a chance. No man. We were not created with the strength to overcome sin alone. We weren't. Please come talk to me. Talk to a brother who loves you, who will demand your repentance, but show you kindness and grace. Ladies, as I said earlier, 30% of those who view porn are women. Lust is not a male problem. It's a human problem because all of us are broken by sin. By the way, that number is growing. It's growing because they are doing such a fine job of sexualizing our young girls, over 30%. Ladies, if this is your struggle, it's time to find a sister in Christ who will come to your aid and help you repent and lift you out of your shame. You know, if you don't know who to speak to, if you don't know someone who is safe to confess to, I encourage you to speak to Janessa Anzalini or Emily Howard. Would you two please stand up so people know who you are? There are other ladies in the church that are safe. You've got to do something. Please don't hide in the darkness of your... You know, Christ will cleanse you. He has healing for you. And I know that for women, it's extra hard. He will liberate you. Now, some of you in this room may have a sense of relief from what you've heard today because you don't look at porn, so you're good. But Jesus didn't say it's only those who look at porn that have committed adultery in their hearts. No, it's those who look with lust. You can do that right here in the church without a mobile device. You can. Lust preceded pornography, and it's because of lust that it succeeds and makes billion. You don't have to be porn to commit adultery. You just have to have lustful thoughts. Others in the room are saying to themselves, I would never look at porn. Those people are gross. They disgust me. And so instead of being guilty of adultery in the heart, you are proud and self-righteous. 
like the devil. The self-righteous people are always clueless when it comes to their own sin. Our moral brokenness is no different from one person to the next. We just have different manifestations of it. The brokenness is the same. And by Jesus' interpretation of God's moral standards, we all stand condemned. So thankfully, Jesus didn't come to condemn us. That would have been all too easy. He came to do something difficult. Consider his own words. He said, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Jesus didn't come to condemn. When he put his feet on planet Earth, we were all condemned. Jesus ate with sinners because otherwise he would have eaten alone. You get it? All condemned. There's not a soul in this room that is not broken by sin. We need grace. It's our only hope. So, you know, if the sinless Son of God did not come into the world to condemn people, what business do we have doing it? What business? We're all sinners. We all need to repent. We must all be redeemed. And if we're going to help people, we must be compassionate. We must be humble. We must be. And if you're going to be helped, you have to be honest. You have to find a faithful brother or sister and share your struggles. And I think it's important for me to say this. It wouldn't surprise me if anyone in this church came to me and confessed that they were struggling with lust in some fashion. I got surprised 15 years ago. I don't get surprised anymore. Okay, I, I know my own heart. I know the human condition. We're busted. We're broken. Okay, our sin, or rather one sin to another makes no difference to me. All I want to see is your restoration. And I know the one who restores and sets free. Okay? And I know many people that have been set free. And Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. You guys, if you have radical sin in your life, Jesus says, take radical measures. Humble yourself. Go find someone that loves you, that will demand your repentance, and they'll be gracious to you. Confess. Okay? Let's be restored. Amen? Go ahead and stand up and we'll pray. Lord Jesus, how arrogant of us to be like the tax collector who prayed in the temple and said, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Help us to be, or not the Pharisee rather, help us to not be like the Pharisee, but to be like the tax collector who couldn't even lift his eyes to heaven and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, humble us. And Lord, help us to see things as they really are from your perspective. Help us to be filled with compassion to those who are struggling in sin and need your grace. Lord, help us to be the good brother or sister that demands repentance, but can be merciful and gentle to people. Lord, I don't know a believer that doesn't want purity, but I know a lot of believers that have discovered that in themselves there's nothing good that dwells, that they have no strength. So Lord, help us to, to come together in numbers to be strong, to encourage one another, to build each other up. The fight is real. Help us not to deny it, Lord. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you came and in your grace, you gave your life, that you took my sin upon you. You're punished for every wicked thing that I've ever done and ever will do. In your mercy, you granted your righteousness to me that I might be accepted by your Father. Thank you. And Lord, I thank you for your Holy Spirit who indwells us to sanctify us, to make us more like you. Help us to yield to him that our lives might exude the fruit of the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.